This is Bob Rourke with Business Leaders Podcast, and today we're up in Denver, and we're visiting with Brandon Shepard. He's the CEO and founder of Mile High Food Science. Brandon, welcome to the show. Thank you. Hey, Brandon, tell us a little bit about your business and who you serve. We are a food product development consulting company that works with a lot of major consumer packaged goods companies here in America, as well as in Central America. When folks who go food design and they're going like, well, what does that mean? And for, so paint us a picture. You know, we've got this picture that you guys probably can't see that well in the video in the background, but it's a thing called side shots. Let's talk a bit about that and maybe that'll paint the picture for them. Sure. So a lot of food will always start with a concept, just like any other item that needs to be manufactured for consumables. So whether a concept comes from the consumer or from a marketing aspect, that's where the idea starts. Once the data is gathered, it will be handed over to a product developer or a food scientist to say, please make this product that can be manufactured in our facility at this certain cost. And we see that typically in the frozen food counters in the supermarkets regularly. Correct. As you look at it, you know, we were talking about side shots. And then for the listener, they talk about food science. And most that's certainly not how I grew up. I mean, there were family recipes that we'd work with. And what I see, and from what you were talking about, why I was excited about having you on the show, is you did the Hot Pockets work. You did product development for Hot Pockets. And then you've actually had a foray into the cannabis industry as well. Correct. Yeah. So... From a food science, when I was when I graduated college, there was no such degree as a food science degree mm-hmm. when I graduated college. This industry and this position has grown immensely over the past decade, two decades. So food science is actually kind of a funny, it has become a household name now, almost. Everybody knows a food scientist somewhere, right? Or somebody Well, you're knows. my first, so <laughs> well, I'm not well-traveled. Those are the rings I travel in, I guess. Yeah, so the need for this kind of product development and knowledge of the science and manufacturing of food is becoming very important and necessary in this environment. Food is the number one manufacturing business in North America. There's more food manufactured than anything else. So the industry, it seems very innocuous and we all have to eat, but it is a behemoth of an industry. We were talking beforehand. So you graduated college and you worked at what, a dairy place? Correct. And you worked at a manufacturing facility of some kind? Yes. And then at some point, you got hooked up with either was it Hot Pockets? Yeah. So I actually just fell into the food industry. I was working. I had just come back from a teaching job in Japan for a year, and 9-11 had happened while I was there. So when I came back, there were zero jobs to be had. So I was a camp counselor. I did work with my dad when he could afford it, and then I was a microscopist for a long time. And I just happened to fall into a temp job at Nestle Handheld Food Groups, which was located in the Denver Tech Center at the Mm -hmm. time. Worked there for a week, slinging Hot Pockets on the bench top, making them by hand, actually. And they gave me a job offer the next week, and the rest is history. For you, your degree is microbiology. Correct. Yeah, that's a torturous path from microbiology (laughs) to food. Yeah, I fell into it and I got pretty lucky, I think, that my career path took me to food. And so you went from basically assembling Hot Pockets, you got a job offer, 
And what were the type of things that you were doing for Nestle that led you kind of to where you are today? So the first position that I was offered was a filling technologist. Mm -hmm. So if you know a Hot Pocket, it's made of two pieces, the dough and the filling. So most of our processes were either product optimization to make them run better through the factory or was cost reduction Mm -hmm. was a lot of what we did. So that was a lot of the maintenance. I was fortunate enough to where Nestle sent me to the American Institute of Baking, where I became a certified baker out of Manhattan, Kansas, one of the best baking schools in the world, especially for manufacturing of baked goods. And then they gave me a promotion to bakery technologist. So that's where I got to work on the crust instead of the filling. It was at that time where we had the concept of the side shots and was able to launch that product in nine months from concept to on shelf. And for the folks that aren't aware of the side shot, it's basically a bun wrapped around like a hamburger filling. It was a slider. Sliders were huge at the time, and everybody wanted to get into the slider market. It was a, a no-brainer for a Hot Pocket to go in the same concept. It was just the form and function was very difficult to achieve through large-scale manufacturing. So this was the compromise in our attempt to penetrate that market at the time. And that was something that you took from concept to market in nine-month time frame. In nine months, yes. Scale up and everything through the factory, which is a pretty short time for this type of product at that scale. And typically, so folks have a comparison. If you were like the Hot Pockets or the breakfast, toaster, jelly filled, whatever those are, what's the typical time frame to take and get one from concept to nationwide distribution? So a good time frame is anywhere from a year and a half to three years. And then shelf life is typically how long? So that's the interesting part of food, especially frozen food. Frozen food has a much longer shelf life than other products. So the shelf life of a Hot Pocket, let's say, is around 18 months. Wow. Now, the best buy date has really little to do with the consumer. Mm-hmm. It has more to do with the product getting through the distribution from manufacturing to on shelf. So it can take up to six months, eight months for even a product to get through the distribution before it's on shelf. So the retailer requires that kind of shelf life in order to get the quality product in your hands in time. And typically, you were talking about this one was on the shelf and in demand for about five years. When I worked at Nestle, they published a book and out to everybody. And one of the interesting things I pulled from it was a line extension, which is what this is. A mm-hmm. line extension is simply taking the base product and adding a new flavor to it or something, right? Mm-hmm. So The original Hot Pocket was a pepperoni and a ham and cheese. Mm -hmm. Everything else is a line extension, right? So the typical success rate of a line extension in this kind of a company is 2%, Mm -hmm. right? So for a product like this to sit on the shelf for five years after production, to me, is a success. Absolutely. It's funny. I get so fascinated about what you do is as a typical consumer, you go past the shelf of all the frozen this and frozen that's and you'll see something go, well, that's unusual. Like the rage now, I think, is the little cup you drop an egg in and you microwave and you have your own omelet in a deal. Sure. And you kind of go, well, I mean, how many of us made omelets? But they make it convenient and microwavable. Right. And so that's out there. And then there, what was it? Poppers, the jalapeno poppers for a while were a big deal with various cheeses and so on and so forth. Absolutely. Totino's Pizza, right? The little tiny pizza bites, right? That was the number one competitor. You know, maybe maybe it's just me. Maybe there's a lot of folks that are really familiar with this arena, but I was not. Sure. And so I think, and by extension, to segue a little bit, 
is that you have Colorado, for those that are outside of Colorado, don't know that the cannabis industry is fairly robust here. You were talking about you did a cannabis brownie at one point and you broadcast it and all that stuff. Yeah. So here in Colorado, we're fortunate enough to have a new market, a billion dollar market up, open up overnight. And one of the components of this market is food. So it was a it was an opportunity that we thought we should go after. So we have created several products that are used in the cannabis industry, as well as we work with a lot of clients here that have existing products where we help them extend their shelf life or get more consistent dosing in their mm-hmm. products, right? Mm-hmm. Just to make the product quality better. And in the chewing gum one just stuck in my mind. I was going, well, there's something I wouldn't have thought of personally. So if you could walk us through the, the thought process, time frame, design, and then execution. Fortunate enough for us, since we're a very small, tight-knit company, we can move much faster than the nine-month timeline that we have here. We have a concept for a chewing gum with cannabis in it. We actually have some products that have been made and distributed here in Colorado. We fell into that concept. Another one of these, we just happenstance to fall into it. The first production machine we made was in my garage to test the concept, prove the concept. That worked, so we went full steam and actually was able to develop a very well-received product that is unique. There's not another one out there, as far as I know, in this market. When you develop a unique food product, whether it's that one or that one, can you license patent or protect your design? Yeah, so in this instance, we are licensing this formula and the process to third parties who want to manufacture and distribute it under either our name or a private label name. In the food industry, I tell people never patent anything in the food industry, especially a formula, a recipe, or a process. Because someone like me will come right up behind him and say, well, I can change this, this, and this and get these same exact outcome. So what we've done actually in our, uh, in our gum base is we've separated into three bags so that you have bag A, bag B, and bag C, which mm-hmm. holds, now we can hold our IP mm-hmm. closer to us, but make it available to these licensees in a very usable form. And from the idea for me, what in the world were you thinking about when you decided, this is, I'm going to make some cannabis chewing gum? So how did that thought come to you? Yeah, so we are constantly looking at new products, new trends, what's out in the market, constantly reading my LinkedIn feeds to see what's new, what's out there. And then the other side of it is just the experience of working in a company like Nestle or like Dean Foods that have the resources to pull consumer data, that have the resources to pull in consumer testing, that kind of stuff, where you learn to say, this is the smartest decision to go after, whether it's low barrier to entry, ease of manufacturing, uniqueness of item. So if right now the cannabis industry is saturated with gummies, Mm -hmm. every single company and their brother makes a gummy and they're huge. They're probably the number one consumed edible right now. From my experience in the CPG industry, it is not easy for a new person to penetrate a market that is so so overly saturated, but everybody is. Mm -hmm. So our goal is to say, what are those products that aren't out there so we don't have to compete with a lot of people and that are easy to make and can be low cost? I want every single consumer to leave that 
retail store with one of my products. Mm-hmm. And if it takes being the lowest price, which is right now is a good incentive, that's one of our strategies. It's interesting, you know, I think about the past training that brings you to hear from the major food production folks and so on. And for the listener out there, it's going, you know, I've had this idea for this food product since my family recipe or whatever. What's the process for them to reach out to you and how do you make a decision or how do you guys help them make a decision whether it's something to go forward with or not? So we get a lot of our leads through the LinkedIn mm-hmm. or through milehighfoodscience.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have an entry form there as well as the industry connections that I have. So a lot of it is a referral. We do very little outgoing marketing or sales. So what would typically happen is we get a request from a customer and let's assume it's a, it's a startup, mm-hmm. right? And I have this great idea. My grandma's had this recipe forever and it's, everybody loves it. I want to can it. I want to put it in a jar and sell it. That's mm-hmm. how valuable it is, right? Salsa. Exactly, right? Oh, yeah. So the process is they come to us and basically there's an evaluation. They have to fill out a lot of information and relay what they want. For example, serving size, ingredients, what ingredients can't you use? What certifications do you want? So we need to know a pretty much an idea of what they're imagining it looks like on the shelf mm-hmm. before we even start designing anything. The main goal of the very first encounter is to say, yes, this is doable or no, this is not doable. So that's where we start. Is there a point where we will advise that it's probably not a good path to go down? There have been those instances. But that doesn't mean that we should stop there. We will also say, well, here's an alternative that we think that might be successful. Why don't you, would you like to explore this avenue as well? So we will give alternatives to products that we have very good insight to know that's going to be a hard market to get into. And some of it could be regulatory. Mm -hmm. Some of it could be the laws that are in place. It's going to take you money to overcome those barriers. Do you have that kind of money? That's the discussion we have. This is what it's going to cost to go past. Once we're done with you, here's what it's going to cost Mm -hmm. to go past that. Right. I think about it for sake of argument. I came up with a salsa family recipe and we go through it and you go, here's what it's going to be and do on packaging and so on. Is there an outsourced firm that will take and then make it for you or do you then have to do it yourself? Absolutely. There are many co-manufacturers here in town and all over the country, big and small, that you basically take your recipe to and you say, here, can you please package this for me? And here's what I want the label to look like. And they will do it for you. They have to make sure it's safe. So there will be some testing and there may be some changes that have to take place at that because they have to produce a safe product that comes out of that manufacturing facility. But no, absolutely. And luckily enough, here in Colorado, we have a thing called the Colorado Cottage Act to where there are certain criteria of food that you can make in your house and sell at a farmer's market to get you started. I think it's run under the Department of Agriculture, and they want to promote people getting into the food industry. Yeah, I've, I've seen in the market in Vale, or in, actually in Minter, and there'll be somebody with jams and somebody else yep. with noodles and all that stuff. And certain products you can't, like chicken. They won't let you sell meat, right? And certain products that can really make you sick. They, Jerky, yes. Well, I've seen jerky in the markets. I don't know if you're supposed it, to, but... It could be. I'd have to revisit yeah. that, but uh, yeah. I try to stay away from meats as much as possible when, oh, yeah. when it comes to not inside a factory. <laughs> we were talking beforehand that Central America has found your company. 
why do you suppose and what kind of things are they designing or developing, if you can say, for Central American market? So we were fortunate enough to have a contact that has several customers in Central America. We are the product development wing of this rather large company. They've hired us to do that. And just, I think, through good business practices and good business relationships, it started with one who recommended it to the other who recommended it to the other. So I think it's just been, luckily, we were in the right place at the right time, I think, is how we got there. That's usually called hard work. <laughs> and I think about is the palette here in the United States maybe is focused one way, I suspect. Yep. And the palette in Central America maybe is focused in another. From the development side, what do you think is the most unusual food product that you've been working on for down in Central America? So we work on basically the same kind of beverages that we have here in, in the United States. The fruits are a little different, maybe. Mm-hmm. There's nothing really too strange that we've worked on that we would consider out of the ordinary here, I don't think. But we have designed some very interesting combinations that these companies wouldn't reluctant to take a risk on, mm-hmm. if, if I can put it that way. So we've worked on some very fruit and vegetable type combinations of juices mm-hmm. that you would never imagine going together that just gives you the perfect experience. For example? We did a, a guava red pepper. And this thing was amazing. Not something I would... You would never ex- no. assume that drinking a red pepper on a cold, I mean, on a hot summer day is desirable, but the two flavors and the experience was just remarkable, right? So something to that effect. Mm-hmm. We also work with a lot of coffees and teas and, and those types of drinks. Was it a Dunkin' Donuts coffee now? There's like a cookie dough coffee they've come out with? Sure. Which would be a line extension. Exactly. Yeah. That's exactly. For, for the folks out there, before I forget, if they need to reach out to you or want to reach out to you, what's the best way for them to find you? Right now, our website, and then send us a message off the website. And that's milehighfoodscience.com. Correct. Okay. All spelled out in one word. The other one is, you can look me up, Brandon E. Shepard on LinkedIn.com. LinkedIn. That's mm-hmm. where we get a lot of, that's basically the only social media platform that we're on. That's good for folks because, you know, I, I suspect there'll be a few imaginations that will be peaked a little bit. And to further down that thought process, I understand that there's an opportunity for your chewing gum down in Colombia as well. Yeah, so we are working with Colombia is a very open country mm-hmm. at this point on cannabis right now. It's going through some transitions, but we're looking towards that's an exciting market that's going to open up as well. And it just happens that we know people in these other countries that are you know, legalizing faster than we are. Mm-hmm. And let's take those opportunities while we can. I've heard folks talk about CBD, which I kind of get lost in the math and everything else mm-hmm. there. But are you seeing a lot of food product design around that particular segment of the market as well? It's getting bigger. There's still a lot of gray area about CBD. So I think a lot of people are treating it as a nutraceutical so it's going more into tinctures and tablets and pills and that type of lotions and that type of thing. As soon as the dust kind of settles, we're going to see a lot bigger opportunity in the food side on CBD. Mm-hmm. And hopefully there's more research that happens. That's the big question is how much do I take? I have no idea. You were talking. I was thinking, do you guys get involved in pet food design at all? So we have designed several CBD dog treats. Okay. Um, and we have some inroads in regular dog food as well. It's not our focus. Mm-hmm. In the cannabis dog treat 
world is another very gray area. Mm -hmm. Um, The regulations behind pet food are much more stringent than human food. So CBD is not on the list of approved ingredients, Uh so it is illegal to put it in it. I'll be. Now, are people doing it? Yes. Are they having very good results? I'm going to say yes, the the results I've seen. But once again, I'm not a veterinarian, Mm -hmm. and my dog can't tell me if he feels real pain relief or not. So I'm I'm on the fence at this one. Oh, sure. Sure. Yeah, particularly because they can't get feedback from the pooch. Exactly. In this part of the episode, I thought I would segue a little bit and start checking with some of the, the questions that we talk all the time about. So for you in you know, running your business, what's the most recent book or most influential book that you've read that's altered your perception on running your company? The most recent book I've read is, you know, How to Make Friends and Influence People, right? Mm-hmm. I don't read a lot of business books, but I have to say the most influential book for my entrepreneurship has been The Fountainhead. Mm-hmm. Um, so... I read that when I was probably 25 years old, and it made me realize why I thought the things I thought, put clarity to just the way I thought. And I took that as, I try to take that as a lesson to say, here's how, if we just keep consistent in working this way, it's the right way to do it. (laughs) I don't know if you're familiar with the book or not. I'm not. I'm not. So that's probably the biggest, and I recommend everybody to read that book. And you spoke, or you taught English as a second language in Japan. How do you think that experience affected or influenced how you run your company? So that's a great question. The Japanese culture and how they run business is a very unique situation. And it works very well for them. Mm -hmm. But I don't think it works very well in the American culture of Mm -hmm. businesses. But I do like to think about what more of the structure that they have and the loyalty that happens within a company there. A lot of them don't even jump companies, right? They'll stay in the same job for their entire lifetime, which here, if we jump seven or eight times, you know, you're doing, you're moving up the ladder at that point. So the other skill I took away from teaching foreign students, and some of them were young and a lot of them were adults, was how do you make it through eight hours and still look like you are so excited at that very last class, right? That was a very big lesson to learn that it was those people at the end of the day were just as important as the people in the first of the day. So you had to relay that. You just have to keep your energy up. It was exhausting. It was absolutely exhausting to do that for eight hours straight. <laughs> Gotta learn how to get restarted all the time. <laughs> Looking back over running that company, what failure or at the time apparent failure has served you and your company best or set you up for future achievement? I think we spoke earlier about I used to own a rock and roll bar when I worked at Nestle. And this doesn't necessarily have to do with this company, but I don't consider my rock and roll bar to be a failure, but it wasn't a success either. But what I did get out of it was probably a business degree that was more valuable than a Harvard right? I learned more things about how to run a business doing that thing than you could ever find in a textbook. So I take a lot of the lessons I learned in that place and apply it to all my future endeavors. And that was probably the biggest one there. If you were to take and say today's Brandon and go back and advise the Brandon that was just getting ready to buy the bar and make it, what would today's Brandon tell that Brandon? Actually, I had another person tell me this, and this is what I would tell my younger self is you might as well sit 
outside the bar and hand everybody five dollars as you walk by, and it will and you will lose less than uh, <laughs> than owning the bar, right? Mm-hmm. So my advice would be don't get into that industry. Now, one of the problems, and I will say, one of the problems was we were a rock and roll bar. Right? It was dark and it was loud and the drinks were cheap. And Colorado outlawed smoking inside six months into my business. So 95% of my clientele smoked. That's just how it was. So now instead of the patrons drinking a beer and smoking at the same time, they have to drink some beer and then go outside and smoke and then come back inside and drink some beer. So it actually destroyed our business. It destroyed the the music venue, the little small local venue business here in town. Outside influence, huh? Amazing. <laughs> I don't even know what to say. So that's what I, I think that was a major factor in because we didn't have a bar where the clientele wasn't smokers, mm-hmm. right? Those did exist, right? But that's not what we wanted to do. Wow. If you could take and put an ad on page one of the local paper sharing your company's message or advice, what would it say and why? The food industry is very rewarding, but it takes a lot of hard work. So we are there, and this is what we tell our big and small clients, we're there to hold hold your hands. We are a on-call food doctor, right? What was it back in the day? You had your doctor came and did house calls. Mm -hmm. That's what we do. So I would try to communicate to the community that we're here and we'll even come to your house to help you solve your problems, especially in the food industry. Good message. For you, what's been the best allocation of either time or initiative that's helped your company the most? The biggest influence we had that I could have put time into was actually when I worked at Nestle and when I worked at Dean Foods. Every time the salesperson, a sales per, a vendor would come to the office, they call everybody and make the rounds, right? And I noticed that not many people went and talked to the sales guy. Even if I wasn't working on a meat project, they would still call me for example. But I would always go out and talk to them for whatever reason. I'm sorry, I don't need any of your products. Not working on a project like that, but thank you for how's the wife and kids, right? When I started my own business eight, nine years later, those are the people that helped me get new business, right? So forging those relationships, taking that time and just being polite and nice to these people was paramount in my success later. Interesting. Yeah. Good advice. Good allocation. They they know everybody. The sales stat, the sales force in this industry knows everybody. Mm-hmm. So I was fortunate enough to have those resources to available to me once I started on my own. Now that doesn't mean that it was a home run every time, mm-hmm. but at least I had some help yeah, get started. Absolutely. Good advice. What's the most unusual habit or what others may consider out of the ordinary that's helped you or your company most and why? That's a good one. I think my biggest habit is Always trying to think of something else to do. We're notorious here at this company for getting halfway through a project and saying, well, what if we did it this way, mm-hmm. right? So typically we'll continue the way that we'll finish that project out, but now we have some information to do something that's brand new, right? So probably my biggest habit, I don't know if it's considered lateral thinking or not, but that's probably my biggest habit. I get sidetracked by <laughs> new ideas. Well, you know, you look at, at the illustration of the side shots on line extension, which you've been taught, and you think, how can I take, improve, make better, make less expensive, or alter? Yep. 
I think that's the biggest thing. Where's the opportunity to make this better? Because you even mentioned that gummies crowded market in the cannabis space, but chewing gum not so much. Right, exactly. Yeah. Right. And there's a lot of identifying those gaps and all that other stuff that goes along with it. And that's vision. And a little bit of experience, just been failing. A lot of it has to do with already trying it and failing. Well, you can go for it if you want to, but here's what we learned. We've paid a lot of money for this education. (laughs) Absolutely. Over the past three years, what belief or protocol have you established in your company that has most impacted you or your company's success and why? That has to be convincing uh, my wife, Barbara, to join the company. We saw a definite turnaround in our entire business model. And she is a microbiologist, too. Correct. Your kids have no chance whatsoever. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Poor guy. (laughs) What advice would you offer to a new CEO that's assuming the role of CEO for the first time and why? Probably the typical response is go with your guts. And the other thing is you're going to make poor choices. That's just how you learn, right? And especially if you're in a smaller CEO role like me. When I was CEO, I was my boss and I was CEO of me, right? That was it. And so every choice affected me personally and affected the business. And some were better, some were good, and some weren't. But you didn't make those bad ones twice. That's probably the most important part. Yeah. Get the opportunity to make it one time. Yeah. What's the most common misconception about you or your role as CEO? Probably that I'm rich and powerful. (laughs) I don't know. I don't actually think of myself as in the CEO role. And I don't, I try not to convey that to my customers. Basically, they're just to serve, just to make them happy. That's about it. It's a great question. I'm not quite sure on that one. For you, looking back over the past three years, what would or should you have said no to and why? If someone comes to you and says, I have a client that is a celebrity blank, that's when I say no. (laughs) I understand. In the day-to-day operation of your company as CEO, what's the personal habit or self-talk dialogue that keeps you and your company focused? It's the whole adage, eating an elephant, right? It's one bite at a time. This, we do not turn stuff over quickly in this industry, and we fail a lot in this industry. We'll work six months on something, and they get a call, oh, project's over. We've decided to go a different direction. Thank you. Wow. So it's in the long haul, and don't be afraid to fail. You're going to fail a lot in this, in this side. Wow. What's a quote that you find meaningful or one that you use frequently? These guys hear it all the time, and it's, Thomas Edison comes home every day and tells his wife, I learned another way how not to invent a light bulb. That's where that failure side comes in. It's not, you're not failing, but you're learning how not to make a light bulb. Have faith in the process. Absolutely. Because the outcome, not necessarily rewarded. Yep. These big companies and the whole goal is probably in manufacturing entrepreneurship as a whole is to find that one thing that sticks. Okay, so we, for example, in Nestle, we had a whole team of product developers and we released a lot of products and we worked on a lot of products, but only one or two hopefully took, right? And those would pay for the rest of the, of the R&D for the other ones. I think about when you go to the candy aisle in any store and, you know, you'll see the old tried and trues and the favorites that are always there. And then you'll look down and go, well, that's weird. That's new. And then you come back some period of time later and the weird new is now gone again. And I think there's that periphery of trying out. Mm-hmm. I don't remember the last time I saw a really brand new candy bar of any description that really hit a home run. I agree. I, you it's know, tough. And, it's absolutely tough. And the, the one innovator that figures it out, figures mm-hmm. out that new combination. Because if you think about a candy bar, they're chocolate, mm-hmm. peanuts. Well, I think like M&M's. Okay. So, you okay, know, you so think about candy. the chocolate sure. versus, and then you wrap it so it doesn't melt. Right. 
Yes. So, and then, unless you leave it in the car, <laughs> yeah. melts in your mouth, <laughs> not in your hands, right? Yeah, exactly. And it's very. What's the other part is it's hard, very hard to penetrate at the same price point mm-hmm. as those as a smaller company. So, and it's really a numbers game. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Typical big business. If we were to talk to your colleagues and we asked them what you were best at, what would they say that would be, and how do you utilize that strength on a daily basis? Probably it would be the innovation side of me. I'm constantly trying to improve, create, and optimize every aspect of my life. It's, it's <laughs> probably drives my wife nuts. But I've learned the most optimum way to load the dishwasher, for mm-hmm. example, right? And it just has to do with doing it 400 times over the past <laughs> 12 mm-hmm. years that you learn how to be, mm-hmm. you learn how to optimize it. So, and that works very well in this industry. Our job is to make people who produce food produce it as smooth as, as possible with as very few issues. There's another guest on the show, Dick Lee. He, he did some work on the innovation side. And I think about if you were sitting down and I said, I'm going to think something up. And he goes, so how did you know, I want that? I think it'd be very hard to do. But what do you use to populate the material between your ears that keeps you creative and keeps you thinking? What do you do? I think it's all about being observant. Mm -hmm. Just like you said, I walk down the candy aisle and it's noticing that new thing. And what is it, right? And how did they do it? And then when you go back next time and it's observing that it's gone, why is it gone? It's all about trying to figure out all those mechanisms, right? That make something successful and what doesn't. My son oftentimes goes to the Asian markets. And goes through and talks about what he sees in the aisles. He's a bit of a foodie. And I've been in an Asian market a few times and foods that I'm not used to seeing for sure. And I I think that populates my mind with, huh, never would have thought of that. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And the other part of it is when I walk through the Asian markets, Mm -hmm. what's missing there, for example, the second or third generation that is 100% American, Mm -hmm. right? And what I see missing out of the aisle is the pizza rolls. Mm-hmm. So if I had my dumplings, right, and my gyoza, and if I had pizza rolls right next to it, my kids or my grandkids, now I don't have to go over to King Supers to. So absolutely, going through these different places where we're not accustomed to shopping at or new types of products really is very inspirational. It makes Gets the, gets the gears turning, mm-hmm. right? So what could be? I was really looking forward to visiting with you today because this is such an area that's out of my wheelhouse and was fascinated by what you do. And so I can't tell you how much I appreciate you taking the time out of a busy day to be on the show. And Brandon, thanks so much for your time. Well, thank you very much for having me. Oh, I appreciate bet. it.